Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Kelly Grasser, chronic pain patient, patient advocate, and amateur comedian, as we're about to find out. And so with that, let's welcome Ms. Kelly Grasser. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I have my friend Pam with me. Peace sign. Love it. How are you? So in the... I'm doing well, thank you. Wonderful. So, um, in the in the name of peace, let's start. Let's first start by going over your story as a chronic pain patient, and first understand how you got into the world of chronic pain advocacy. Sure, um, my pain. Um, well, my injuries happened a long time ago, um, from the time I was 18 to probably. 30-ish. I was in several vehicle accidents, motorcycles, semi-cars, work accidents, working in paper mills, a lot of uh, hard physical labor. So I just kept re-injuring the same areas of my neck and my lower back. And, um, you know, I survived it and thought I was okay until I got older. And all of a sudden, of course, I'm still working. And every day is getting more painful and more painful. Um, didn't even know you could really go to the doctor for pain. Um, just thought you went there when you had an injury. So um, I'd go until I'd be in a horrible flare. And I'd go to the ER because I wouldn't know what else to do. And, of course, this is all pre-2012, 2009, actually, before that, Um where they would give you a few pain pills to get through a flare, get you back to work, and everything would be fine till the next one. And that probably went on for a year or two. And finally, the um, local ER said, you know, you, you need a doctor. Somebody needs to treat you for this. And that was how I realized I was a pain patient. Um, so, of course, we all went to primaries back then. And they took care of us, a primary doctor. You know, we went through physical therapy. We did a few injections, pain meds, of course, and never really had a flare again. I mean, not like I was. Continued to work, continued to re-injure, continued to get older. Arthritis set in. Now my pain is more and more. and But it was being managed. And I did that for probably 12 years. And then 2016 rolled around. And now I don't have a doctor anymore. So I'm sent to a pain clinic who wants to take away all my medication. Um, you know, the gaslighting of how bad it is and how bad we are as people for wanting it. And I even went back to my primary to explain that this is absurd to be talked to like this. I'm a grown adult. I don't need to be treated this way. And she didn't seem to care. So I then ventured off on my own to find a different doctor. And I found one that Pam and I both went to. And we were good for about three years. Then COVID came and he retired. So then we had no doctor again. I probably saw seven, eight, possibly nine doctors before one would take me. So, um, During COVID, 
During COVID, well, during yeah, COVID, you yeah. were doctor shopping. From from March to June of the first COVID, my primary treated me, and then she started tapering me again. And then that's when I went and found all, you know, I started seeing all these doctors. But because I was on certain medications, some would even see me. Some would see me, even went and did new MRIs just to be told, no, we're not going to prescribe anything to you. Yeah. And, yeah. So if, if, you have a, if you have a doctor who's asking for MRIs, uh, that doctor is looking for an excuse not to treat you. Just, uh, you know, as, as a pro tip. Um, and I let's, as, um, as it was an old MRI and maybe they just wanted to see new ones. You know, my, my other ones were old, so I didn't no, think no. nothing of it. No, no, I, I get that. Let's, um, let's talk about two things you had mentioned that I thought were really fascinating. You talked about pain versus injury. And then you talked about when you became this pain patient, even though you were coming to the ER and coming to various physicians for pain-related symptoms, but you were not, quote-unquote, a pain patient. So talk about pain versus injury and when along this continuum of your health experience you became a pain patient whatever that means. Well, I, in my eyes, I took it as a pain patient, as a chronic pain patient, that I would need continued care or continued medication to live my life, to keep working. Um, I've always worked and um, I intend to work. And, um, you know, without my meds, I, I won't be working. And uh, I have luckily found a few physicians over the years that they were happy to hear that and were happy to help me um, continue to work. So um, I guess the ER told me I was a pain patient. And that's the first I had ever heard of being a pain patient. And then when um, the 2016 guidelines came out, then I really learned a lot about it. Do you feel like you were unfairly labeled or do you feel like you were properly characterized? I, I, I guess it's not either or. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe talk about your experiences yeah. and how policy and the labeling of policy affects you as a patient. Sure. Um, I think pre-2016 was okay that I was labeled because I was receiving care. I was able to to have a pretty good life um, with the regimen I was on. Um, once that got taken away, it's like the whole um, phrase or term label of pain patient became negative. I didn't feel it was negative before the guidelines. Now it's negative and most people um, you know, you they hear pain patient, you know, other clinics, doctors, they they don't even want to talk to you. You know, they they just expect that yeah. you're looking for medication. I, I'm really glad that you phrased it the way you did, because I want to ask 
a question that may appear silly, but I feel is very important mm-hmm. and I think you will find important as well. Did the perception of how you were treated, the perception of your condition, a good pain patient, a bad pain patient, pain is good, pain is bad, did that affect the severity of your symptoms, how you characterize your symptoms? Talk about how the outward perception of pain and you as a pain patient dictated how you felt internally. Um, I think pre-2016, I didn't mind it because I was receiving care that helped me. I was no longer concerned about. So I should back up. Before I got um, the pain care, you know, in like 2009 to 2016, um, I did have several jobs because I was losing jobs over attendance because of my flares. So once I got, um, I guess, diagnosed or labeled, however you want to say it, but I was getting managed care, I never missed a day again. And to this day, I've almost never missed a day, and it's been over 14 years, except for I've cut back a few hours when I've been without a doctor again, because I have experienced that several times now since 2016. Um, I I now look at it as like, oh no, I'm a pain patient and nobody wants to help me. Where pre-2016, it's like, oh, I know what's wrong with me. I now know why I was missing work or having these flares, but I manage and I can I can do it. I can do what everybody wants me to do, whether it's work or home or I can be me. And, and now I don't have that again because what I am getting now as a regimen is maybe a third of what I was on. So I have to plan what I'm going to do by my medication. I don't just have the medication to just go do everything I need to do every day. I have to plan it out now. Understood. Work seems very important to you. It is. And I think that's a fair assessment. That's a fair assessment for everybody. Mm -hmm. Work is important to me. My identity is tied to my work. Mm -hmm. Your identity is tied to your work. Work is very important. Pain seems to inhibit your ability to work. So by that logic, it seems that pain affects your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, the way you are treated as a pain patient, does that ever affect your identity, ever affect your willingness to work, how you look at your medical condition? Talk about some of these more subtle aspects of pain and how you identify it. My fear is I won't be able to work. That is always the biggest thing on my plate is what if my doctor goes away? What if my this regimen, even though smaller, goes away? I live alone. I care for myself. I pay my way. What if I can't? What if I can't? You know, I have a car payment and house payments and everything like everybody else. 
that goes away, where would I go? What would I do? And I, I'm in real estate. I manage um, six apartment complexes. I have over 220 units that I manage. It's a lot of work. And um, I work over 60 hours a week, sometimes more. But I like it. And I feel I'm needed there. And I have a great crew. And um, if I couldn't work, I just, I don't, even if I lost this job, I don't know what I would do. It would be hard for me to find a different job because with this job, I have the ability to sit, stand, walk, come in late, stay late. I'm not punching a clock on salary. And thank God, because on the times where I've been without a doctor or without medication, and I had to switch my hours up and do what I could do at the time, if I was getting paid by the hour, I would have lost a lot of pay. And your job. Yeah, and my job. So let's... <laughs> and my job. I, I love the comedic relief. It's, it's amazing. Um, let me um, ask a question that might be unfair, but I think you would be a great person to answer it. You mentioned your job helps you to accommodate your pain. Is it fair to say that other patients with chronic pain that struggle with work, that struggle with their job, should find similar accommodations? Or do you feel that it was an unfair burden put upon you that you somehow managed to work it out? Talk about pain and working and how you figured it out and how other people struggle to figure it out. I think a lot of people struggle with this. I've read many postings and comments online of, you know, what what are they going to do? They've been on disability and now they're going back to work, maybe still on disability. And their bosses are saying, well, we just can't accommodate that. And, and I've reached out and tried to help people with some of that. I think I lucked out finding this job. Um I've never done this kind of work before. I kind of used everything that I have done and convinced the right people to give me a chance. And uh, like I said, I've never missed a day in over 14 years because, because of the position. But it certainly, you know, like I said, doesn't mean I don't work my butt off because I really do. But, um, uh, I'm trying, trying to answer your question. I kind of got sidetracked. <laughs> no, I think the important thing here is to understand that pain affects people differently and that some people are able to find work despite pain, but other people cannot. So how, how do we have this conversation? Do we simply say, suck it up and move on? Do we say, oh, we have to take care of your pain? It's a formal disability. Do we find some middle ground? If there is a middle ground, how do we find it? How did you find it? How did other people find it? These are not easy questions. So talk about your experiences so maybe we can at least get a starting point. Mm -hmm. um, it, I mean, had I not found the right doctor before taking the job, um, I, um, 
I don't know if I would have even taken the job. You know, I might have still been struggling, looking for something that I could do. Um, but then even once I had the job a couple years into it is when, um, you know, with the 2016 guideline change. So then I was forced to, you know, figure out, am I going to be able to keep the job? And then again, luckily found a doctor and in a, in a short time, actually. Um, but it seems like ever since, you know, 2019 or so, I worry every day or every three months when I do go to my physician, am I still going to have a physician? You know, is, am I still going to get yeah. that same prescription? Are those things all going to change? And then how is that going to go back to affecting my job? Um, I think some people might have to change the job up that they're used to doing, but they might find that it's much better for them. Um, like I said, I probably wouldn't have done this job had I not had the pain. I'd probably still be working in a factory. I've owned businesses too for a while. Um, so I've done a lot of different things, so it kind of fell into this, but I guess people have to, um, you know, look outside their comfort zone to find comfort, if that makes sense. You know, we kind of stay in this. No, it makes Stay in the same uh, field um, of employment, um, but might have to just try something new, you know. But how much do you tell an employer about it? You know, do you, would you really bring it up on an interview? I don't know. Did, did you bring it up on your interview? No, but I have brought it up since. So my supervisor is well aware of my advocacy that I do. Um, and, and well aware of the pain that I'm in. And they're supportive. They're very supportive of it. Thank you for your honesty. I, I really appreciate that. I, I think this is really important. Uh, the follow-up question I would have, and again, this is the, these are all unfair questions, admittedly, but I think because we're in this moment and we have this conversation, it's important to just propose the questions, knowing they may be unfair. Uh, the question I have is, what did you do to make it, quote-unquote, easy? And, and again, I say, quote-unquote, easy for you to transition into the workforce given your pain condition and... Why can't other people simply replicate whatever it is that you did to make it, quote unquote, look so easy? And again, I, I use these quotations deliberately because I know it's not easy, mm -hmm. but the manner by which you are telling your story gives off the impression that it can happen. And I don't want to overlook the difficulties in making it happen, but I also want to share your story so that other people can see that, yes, there is a path forward. Um, well, I, I don't think it's easy by any means. Um, and I, like I mentioned, comfort zone earlier. But I think with me is it could have been any job, and I would have gave 110% because – 
that's just who I am. Um, it's not always easy, but I kind of fake it if I have to. But, um, but you know, what? Hey, you and me both. You know, it's it's my livelihood. You know, it's um, I don't want to give up my things. I want it's what I want. Um, and maybe the first one wouldn't be the right one for somebody else. Maybe, you know, I've tried many different things. Um, and like I said, even some jobs I, I didn't want, but I had to take them. But it's because I was losing jobs over my attendance issue. Um, and I didn't even know at those times that I could have discussed pain with my employer. Like it never crossed my mind to say, I'm a pain patient because I I wasn't labeled as one then. I was just like, well, now I lost another job. Um, so I just came about and I went for it and, and it worked for me. And I think all the, like I said, I can walk and talk and drive and sit anywhere I need to in all of my properties, which my employer is well aware of. Um, you know, to do the task, but also because of the pain and, and they're fine with that because I'm always doing something. Um, and maybe it wouldn't have worked. I, I would have went on to something else. Um, so I think for someone else, they maybe just have to try different things. And I mean, the only thing I keep thinking of is go out of your comfort zone to find some comfort. Yeah, no, it's so, well said. And uh, honestly, your persistence is inspiring. Uh, I, I want to make sure that that's well understood. Um, what I think is important for people to listen and to understand is how you characterize your chronic pain as a positive or at least not a negative to your employer, yeah. how did you have that conversation? Well, um, I think the second time I ended up without a physician, um, I had to say something because um, with my job, there are certain days of the month, like the end of the month, the first of the month, I have to be seen, I have to be out there, I have to get things done. And um, I just had to have the conversation that this is what's going on with me. I'm in between doctors. I'm hoping to figure this out soon. And, um, you know, I just said if I needed some help, you know, I can ask other managers in the area or let them know what I needed. But I guess um, with the crew that I have and, and my persistence, I guess, you know, I got it done on, on my time, but also and deadlines and um, again um, like even I mentioned in the beginning is with maybe the little bit of medication I had I just planned it out and took it as needed to to get through those days and um, I do talk to my doctor a lot about my employment um, he actually said he wouldn't want my job <laughs> Um, but, um, he understands and he, he wants me to help. He wants to help me stay working. He's glad that I'm working. 
Yeah. And I think um, some patients may find that conversation with the doctor to be helpful. Um, or even if they volunteered somewhere, I think doctors want to see pain patients. Of course, not everybody can. I, I get that. My pain is not as bad as everybody else, I, and I know that. Um, but I don't want to end up there either. You know, I, I talk to a lot of people and I don't want to be homebound. So I'm doing what I can to keep that from happening. And I'm also doing things to try to change this narrative that uh, is so wrongly stated every day. Two questions. Uh, the first question is, did you ever feel the need to coordinate communication between your physician and your employer? Second question is, when at all were you ever negatively typecast, looked down upon for your chronic pain? Whether that was at the physician's office, at the employee setting, um, talk about your perceptions of being disparaged as a chronic pain patient and what you did to overcome that. So again, two part question. Mm -hmm. um, I would not think twice about having my employer and my physician talk if I felt it would benefit. Um, I have a great physician right now and I have a great employer and I think they'd have a great conversation. So I think, um, somebody felt good enough with both of those or one of them, they could help the other. And um, the other part, um, the only negative um, thing, I've never found it at this job, but I have found it at different pain clinics I've gone to. That's where the negativity comes from. Um, and that's, that's what gave me the drive to advocate. Um, you know, if I just went to a couple of different doctors or clinics and everything was fine, um, you know, it, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But the negativity and the, um, you know, downright hurtfulness that the way they speak to some patients is, um, it's just absurd. There's no reason to talk to another human being like that. Um, I didn't do this to myself. None of us have done this to ourselves. None of us want to be in this position. I would like nothing more than to get up and walk freely and without pain or, or have to worry about losing a position or losing a job because of it. You know, there, those are things that, you know, I think of probably almost every day. And uh, I just don't think we should have to be forced to live like that. There's... Um, you know, it's 2023, it's America. We we have other problems. We, we shouldn't have to worry about whether we're in some pain and whether we can work or not because of the pain being not treated. I think if pain was treated a little bit more fairly like it used to be, um, I, I think our workforce would be different. In fact, I am meeting with one of my state representatives in two weeks 
and that was one of our big topics we're going to talk about, is the workforce. If the workforce is so bad, and we have all these pain patients stuck at home, that's a quick, quick, easy fix to get some of them back to work. Well said. I, I, I think that you have an amazing solution on your hands here. Uh, I want to talk about your advocacy and your conversation with your legislator. Before we get to that, and I think this will be a really nice segue, I want to talk about pain and stigma. It seems, based on your conversation, of a conversation, that the stigma arises more in the physician office than it does the employer office. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. So by that logic, you feel that your advocacy would be better suited by taking the chronic pain conversation and focusing on policy, legislation, and your employer. Do you see the clinic, the physician involved in that conversation? I would like to see that. Um, I have discussed a few things with my physician, but I think um, the DEA has such a fear in so many positions that they won't speak freely what they want to speak about. You know, they, they don't want to draw any attention to themselves than what's already out there. Um, I think um, just in talking about the work thing with my doctor, um, and I, I would certainly invite him to some of my meetings that I'm, I've been to and I have new scheduled ones. Um, I, I think he would, but not at this time because he's already getting negative attention that he doesn't want. Yeah. I can relate, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, I, th I think what, what you're doing is absolutely amazing in that you're connecting chronic pain patients and workforce and identifying a need, an unmet need in the labor force. Mm. At a policy level, when you talk about the fear and stigma brought on by criminal consequences from DEA and other organizations, what, what do your legislators say? I mean, obviously it makes sense. Chronic pain patients work for a shortage. Uh, the big hindrance, the elephant in the room, is the criminal consequences. Mm -hmm. What do they have to say about all that? Um, I haven't met with them yet on that. that comes. I'm doing that on May 19th. Um, I've just talked with their offices about it, so I'm, I'm not getting the feedback that, you know, they're not speaking for them, but, but this has been my um, way to get the meetings of what I want to talk about, and they're willing to talk to me about it. So maybe I can come back and share that what? information. <laughs> No, I, I would love it. I mean, it's just, I, I'm enjoying this conversation. I'd love to have you on. Um, again, uh, the question I have, though, is uh, what do you say that garners credibility 
And what do you avoid saying to lose credibility? How do you navigate these conversations? Well, I have a lot of notes. <laughs> um, I guess just that um, there's there's just so many people that did work, um, even if part-time, or maybe they even volunteered, and they can't even do that now because of these policies and um, the, you know, the guidelines. That's what it is, you know. It's, it started with those guidelines, and and I actually um, – I did a petition as well, an old school pen and paper petition. I've sent it to 21 uh, government officials and uh, didn't get a whole lot of feedback. But the one I got from was um, on the federal level from D.C. And she took all my paperwork and sent it directly to the CDC. And they responded to me right away. And this letter I got which I know other pa uh, chronic pain patients have gotten letters in, in the form emails and whatnot, but, but this letter states how, you know, it's not what they wanted. It's not what they intended. They weren't trying to take anybody out of the workforce. So this letter is kind of my um, introduction to legislation that you know, this this is what I'm looking to, I want them to see. And they keep talking about the workforce and the economy and let's put people back in the workforce. I, I, I think it's an amazing argument. And, and I have to say, the advocates that I've done has netted these letters. And you can argue these letters are whatever. And you can also say that these argue, these letters are arguably a validation mm -hmm. of what you're doing. Um, I choose to think of it as the latter, as I believe you are as well. Mm -hmm. um, you are surprisingly insightful in your correlations on workforce, chronic pain, what have you. And I think that it's an amazing insight that you have. Uh, I'm just curious to see who is resonating with that idea. Is it legislators, policymakers, um, bureaucrats? Uh, who in your advocacy is taking to your message the most strongly? Well, I met with um, my governor, and um, you know, and he just recently campaigned, and and you know, workforce is a big thing for him, and um, and then after the campaign, I he had suggested I contact them. Well, I did, but they wanted me to talk to some other people. So that just kind of started like the end of February. So I'm kind of just in the beginning of that. I don't have any real, um, um, better, what's the word, um, documents or, you know, um, I'm just starting with that and getting people to hear me and, and to at least meet with me about it. Um, like some of my other advocates was helping patients and going to doctors with patients and, and doing like one-on-ones where I'm kind of doing this. I mean, I'm doing both, but, but this is something where I kind of started it last fall and of course holidays and weather and all that plays a part and, 
campaigns and whatnot. So, so I'm hoping as after May 19th, when I have this to me as like my big meeting, um, I'll have some big answers for everybody or the start of something anyway. No, and we would be more than happy to chronicle it here. In speaking to you, you seem to garner a natural credibility. You just appear credible. Uh, I, I don't know if that is uh, the nature of our conversation or uh, whether that's just the testament to who you are and your character. Uh, talk about how that affects your advocacy how that helps other patients, and how that helps yourself, your presence, your communication style. It's noteworthy, and I'm curious to see how self-aware you are of that. Um, I have been told that, so I appreciate that. Um, even my physician says I have great conviction, so I want to make sure that I keep that up. Um it's probably something I've always had. Um, I think my job has a lot to do with it. Um, I represent a lot of people, and I, I guess, advocate through my corporate office with my tenants, and and um, I'll, you know, I want to be on their side and and help them. Um, and again, with the other pain patients that I've worked with and and um, met with, gone to physician appointments with them. Um, we always seem to have good results, so I hope it's my presence and some of my words. <laughs> Give us an example. Talk us through a situation where you helped a patient garner credibility or you yourself garnered your own credibility through your own conversation. Well, I um, mean... We have a... We have a a little bit of laughing in the background. <laughs> I just told her, I said, me, just tell them about me. <laughs> I've helped Pam, yeah. Yeah. Several um, times. Um, I guess um, I have gone to several doctors um, trying to find care. I've been turned down, of course, but I've also been accepted as a patient. And then I have also referred many patients. So I like to think some of my referral has played a part off of me. And of course, you know, their medical records and whatnot. But um, I know how many doctors have turned me away. So I can only imagine other people have gone through this. <laughs> and um, it's, it's nice to... Um, have a backing or some insight of a clinic or a physician um, where I never really got that from anybody. Maybe I didn't really ask, but I just kind of went into it blind and hoped for the best. And I've had good results, but then I've also had bad results. Um, I guess you, you do what you do and um, try to have facts and and just be yourself um but when i advocate for other people um you know i i like the patient to do the talking i'm um not there to convince anybody but um if they get stuck on something or um 
I like to just kind of break that ice and and continue on and and bring up you know highlights of of why this would help them if the doctor would take care of them a better life that they could have better life for their family and um I don't know. <laughs> Pretty much sums it up. <clears throat> I, I feel that it's less what you have to say and more about how you have to say it and the conviction mm -hmm. by which you say it that it carries a greater degree of, uh, of conviction, particularly when you're dealing with physicians. If you had to project the rest of 2023 and look at your own advocacy broader policy do you look at things in a positive light do you see things moving forward in a better way or do you still see things going back and forth as they were for the past previous years i do believe it's going forward it's maybe a very slow pace um you know it's always that three steps forward and one or two back, but it's still going forward. Um, I think more and more people are seeing what's happening because more and more people are being affected by it. Um, whether it's, you know, addiction or suicide or pain and, um, I, you know, the longer this goes on, the more people it's affecting. It's, it's going, you know, deeper, you know, in the larger circle of families and neighborhoods. And, and um, you know, I talk to a lot of people and I'd say almost maybe seven out of 10 people I know something about it or, or they're in, uh, affected one way or another. Um, and, and I like to share some information I know, and um, a lot of them aren't aware of certain things. So it's, it's, I think if the general public knew more of what some of us know about, on how this played out and what's happening and who's being harmed, um, I think it would move a lot faster. I think... Um, general public and media, if media would only have helped us. We've been asking them for years and years. A lot of us have done TV, radio interviews, and then it never gets aired. Mm -hmm. We get our hopes up that, you know, this yeah. is going to be the one. And then the news says, oh, well, we had other news. We're not going to play it. Um, we're all talking on Facebook and other social medias. My biggest thing is we need to be talking to other people. We already know what's happening. We can talk about this all day, but let's start sharing it to those who don't know because you just never know who you, who's going to hear you. And it's just going to take a couple people to hear these messages. That might be our ticket to change things quicker. So what is it that chronic pain patients can do to garner credibility? Because as you know, with the media and these narratives, 
so much of it is mass media credibility. Yeah. What can we do? What can I do? What can you do? What can we do to garner credibility? Um, well, I mean, just this podcast is something, you know, if we can get more people to, to listen to this, um, you know, media is, is, is scary. You know, they change things all the time. They, they don't quote things properly. Um, they leave off words that, that change the whole meaning of something. You know, the word illicit was never used for all these years when it should have been. Um, that right there would have saved a lot of things, I think. But, um, I mean, I don't know. Billboards, um, <laughs> I've looked into billboards. Um, some of them are not as expensive as you might think. And then some are really pricey. But but if you, you know, it's all about the demographics. Who is how many, 80,000 people a day are seeing that billboard? You know, maybe a thousand bucks is worth it. You know, I've, I've looked into a, no. some mass advertising about it. Just um, anything, anything and anyone. There's, there's no one you shouldn't be telling about it. You're in pain. It's okay. How about that for a billboard message? Right, right, yeah. Yeah. So, Miss Grasser, thank you so much for your time. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. For those listening who may be interested in getting a hold of you, what's the best way that they can contact you? Um, probably instant message um, at Kelly Gasser. Um, that's probably the easiest okay perfect and so with that uh, Ms. Grasser thank you so much for your time truly appreciate it thank you it was fun <laughs> <laughs>